We recognize that this podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Since the very beginning, Indigenous peoples have inhabited and held responsibilities for these lands that remain home to diverse First Nations. We commit ourselves to the work of reconciliation among settlers and Indigenous peoples, and we acknowledge that not all settlers were brought here by choice. Through this land acknowledgement, our intent is to honour and show gratitude to the original and ongoing stewards of the land as a sign of respect and a willingness to learn and heal. We are mindful of broken covenants and the need to reconcile with all our relations. Together, may we care for this land and each other, drawing on the strength of our mutual history of nation building through peace and friendship, being mindful of the ancestors and generations to come. Welcome to The Intersection, where we have candid conversations that foster connection and build community. We are so glad you're here. For every parent, supporting your child to live their truth, stand in their power, and be wildly successful can be tough. It can be even more challenging navigating parenting through your child's gender transition. In this episode, Nicole McVann and I, Kimberly McKenzie, welcome Mary Kalan into an important and for some life-saving conversation about Mary's experience parenting her two children through a gender transition. In addition to being the mother of two daughters, Mary is the principal of Hands-On Fundraising. After more than 35 years in the nonprofit world, Mary still approaches her work hands-on. She is a consultant, copywriter, and blogger. Mary helps organizations with effective donor communications and smart planning. And you can learn more uh, and subscribe to her newsletter at mkalan.com. The link is in the show notes. Please join me in welcoming Mary to the hub. Okay, well, welcome to Pride <laughs> Month, guys. Um, here we are uh, in June, and I... I'm so pleased to have Mary with us today. And Nicole, thank you for co-hosting with me. This is a, an episode that we've really been looking forward to. And I'm glad we're finally here. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So Mary, um, just to help some of our listeners get used to you and learn a little bit about you before we dig in, um, can you tell us how you came to get started in this sector? Sure, I was um, I was a theater person, and you know, triple threat as a as a younger person, singer, actor, dancer. Definitely, from my earliest years, was going to grow up and be a ballerina. Um, definitely, not so much once I got to thirteen. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen anymore. But um, my so my my first nonprofit job was um, in Washington. Uh, I was hired to work in the box office at Arena Stage, which is one of the U.S.'s largest theaters, um, nonprofit theaters. Um, it quickly kind of moved up. I mean, I, I was kind of running a 30-person staff by, I was probably only 26 or 27 at that point, and managing all of them, which is a little crazy of them, I probably, but I did it. <laughs> and it was great experience. And um we were in D.C. because my uh, fiancé slash husband, depending on when, uh, was in law school. Uh, he got a job. The only job he got that he wanted to take was in Connecticut. So we moved there. And I thought I'd have some time to figure out my next moves. I'd been thinking about moving into fundraising, but 
wasn't sure. Then we found out that his job with the state wasn't going to be paying for like, you know, a month. <laughs> and we were young and broke, so I needed a job like yesterday. So um, I started working at Hartford Stage uh, and um, stayed there for 12 years. Uh, learned from the bottom up because our development director left a couple of weeks after I arrived. So the marketing director and I figured it out. And it was kind of great to do things without knowing what you don't know. Um, so nobody was saying, oh, we can't do that. So we just did it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, moved from there to some other organizations after 12 years at Harper Sage. Um, I had my second child after many years of waiting and um, went back home for a couple years because daycare fell apart um, but then spent another eight or nine years as a fundraising staff person and then finally um, decided it was time to be on my own <laughs> and have a little more control over my life. So um, you're a consultant now. I know I'm a consultant. Mostly direct mail copy right? Yeah mostly copywriting. Um, occasionally occasionally I'll take on a, a client who needs planning and things but most of the time it's it's writing which I love. It's always been my favorite part so. So we've known each other for quite some time. Yes. And, um, we're here not to talk about fundraising tactics but we don't <laughs> do that on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But um, we thought we would uh, get a little bit personal today with you both in um, raw honesty and, and in celebration of living your truth. So um, I'd like to give folks an opportunity, Nicole, to do you want to introduce yourself before we dig into this? Because I know some listeners maybe haven't heard from you for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and I'm excited to do this podcast because a lot of times um, we talk about fundraising tactics and strategies, but I do think um, understanding who we are and our lived experiences can be a really powerful way, not only to build relationships, uh, but just like you say, live your truth. So um, my pronouns are they, them. I'm white, able-bodied, transgender, and non-binary fundraising professional in the Toronto or Takarado region. Uh, I'm the descendants of colonial settlers. I am the parent of a nine-year-old. Um, and I came out uh, to be part of the queer community uh, at the tender age of 35. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, seven years on, I'm still working through what that means to me personally. Um, and also thinking about what that means professionally. Um, as the Vice President of Philanthropy and Marketing at United Way Greater Toronto, I've got a really senior role. Mm -hmm. um, and I take that really seriously. And I take the opportunity to be out and visible really seriously and I'm really proud of that and I'm still learning how to navigate through that but it is something that brings me a ton of joy some trepidation mm -hmm. and an amazing amount of hope for how we can you know rebuild and shift the sector over time to make it much more inclusive not tolerant but inclusive in a place where everybody feels like they belong and, and can be themselves so I got lots more to say but I will pause there because uh, I think that is enough of an intro you know it's um thank you for that and I have an 80 I am a cisgendered white woman 
who lives a life of privilege. I am a stepmother to six and a mother to two. So I have eight children from the ages of 13 to 26. And um, when you talk about a spectrum, <laughs> we've, I'm sure we've got it all and some we don't know yet, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Our house is the house with the pride flag out three seasons of the year um, because I do and I have worked in this community um, and it breaks my heart, particularly when I was working with the AIDS Committee of Toronto, um, to hear stories from folks whose parents disowned them, stopped talking to them. And I'm that fierce mama bear who goes down to pride with a mom hug t-shirt on, right? Just <laughs> giving hugs to strangers because it's just so sad to me. Um, so having said that, Mary, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your experience. Yeah, I I mean all the all the same, Kimberly. You know, I I'm I'm probably more child of immigrants, but than than settlers. Um, but that's sort of the United States story in the East Coast, especially, right? You know, everybody's everybody's from somewhere else, which is which is fine, but I, I'm, you know, normal, standard, cishet white woman with a good life and a house and uh, totally privileged and thought I'd given birth to two boys. Um, I'll be honest, I was, you know, I was kind of hoping for a girl the second time around because I'd always wanted to have a daughter. Okay. Uh, that wish came through in spades because uh, when my oldest was in college, I got a um, I got a phone call. And she was at that point. I thought he, but very very upset. Did you get my email? Did you get my email? And I was at work, and work emails being what they are, it really hadn't filtered all the way through everything yet, so I hadn't. She was in a panic about it. Turns out she had emailed me to come out. Uh, she was trans. Um, the only downside about that in, in the immediate was she hadn't she hadn't emailed my husband too. So he, from the get-go, he felt kind of left out of that. She trusted me, but not him in his mind. And that was hard. But it was just, there was never a, a second of of not supporting her all the way. I, you know, that that never happened, but it was a huge adjustment to make. Um, every we found we kind of had to to grieve for the little boy we thought we we'd raised yeah. and also for the future that we had imagined mm -hmm. for for this what we thought was a male child right um and it took a little getting used to um but supportive from the get-go um she you know she she was really scared and it was hard to be away at school and be really scared. Um, she'd had a, a, a girlfriend for most of her college years and, and that kind of fell off when, you know, I mean, as I said to her, Charlotte is straight and a woman and she's not, you know, this is probably not gonna keep working. Um, and it didn't and Charlotte ended up going off and getting married soon after college and has kid now and everything, I think everything's fine, but it was tough. It was really hard. It was, it was just, it was just adjusting your, 
your thoughts and expectations? And, and then also, of course, language, you know, we stumbled for years with the wrong pronouns and um, beg forgiveness constantly. Um, grandparents were, were all pretty great about it. My husband's family were immediately, oh, okay, fine. I was a little nervous about, about my dad. Um, my mom had just passed away. So I think, I think, I think Mickey came to my mom's funeral in a suit, like a guy suit. And then by the time dad died 11 months later, I think <laughs> she was comfortable wearing women's clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're terrified kind of what my kind of conservative dad would say. So Mickey was looking to me to kind of break the, break the news. I made her sit next to me. And we, we were coming home from vacation south of where my parents are. And we drove up there and we got there. And I looked at my dad and I said, I have something to tell you. And he looked terrified. And I said, well, it's, it's, about, it's about Michael. Um, oh, it, it, you know, worried about physically, worried about, oh, is there an illness or something? And I said, well, she's, she's transgender, dad. And he said, oh, okay. How was the drive up? <laughs> That was it. We spent three days in sheer panic, Mickey and I, and that was it. <laughs> no problem. That's my grandkid. There you go. <laughs> with Jamie, it was a little different because she watched us with Mickey. There's, there's nine and a half years between them. And I think she was feeling like, oh, I can't do this to my parents again. Wait, 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 wait. We missed a beat there. Yep. Because we were talking about your first child. My first child, Mickey. And now we're moving on. And then go forward to Jamie. Was it two years ago? Junior year in college. (laughs) She was home for a break and was an anxious mess. And finally just broke down in tears and said, I'm not all right. Um, And we said, what? And she, she told us she was trans too, but she felt guilty. Like she was adding to our burden somehow. So she was, she was, hesitant to tell. She knew she'd be accepted because she saw us with, with her sister, but I think she was feeling like she was just like adding a burden to us. So it took her a while to kind of just say so. But we were like, no problem. We, we got this. We know what to do now. We're good. <laughs> we're going to mess up on your name all the time, but otherwise, you know, <laughs> <laughs> okay, what we you know, we gotta go get you to the doctor and we you know, we'll get things going. <laughs> but it it's just it's it's a great lesson that life is is not, you know, it's never exactly what you figure it's going to be, you know. There's there's surprises and they bring their own joys. Um and you just have to be kind of ready <laughs> to roll with them when they come. That's a very touching experience um, because I can imagine that for many families, uh, it can blow them up. Yeah, and that breaks my heart. I can't imagine loving your child and not continuing to love your child, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we joke about it often, you know, Um, and that's good because all of us have a sense of humor and we laugh about, you know, and you wanted a daughter. <laughs> and now my oldest is engaged to, to an, another woman. And so I'm like, you know, I'm down two boys, but up three girls. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, but, but how can you not? I mean, that, that, thank God. I, I mean, 
I don't know what would have happened had one of us not been accepting. You know, I think you mentioned something really important. And I have several friends who are going through this experience with their children, several of them, because I think we are living in a far more tolerant world. Yes. Yes. Um, And you touch on the grief for the child that you had and the expectations for the future. And that I think is a very real thing to honor. It's okay. I don't know. What do you think, Nicole? Yeah, I think so. Um, Your story is really beautiful, Mary. And just like hearing you makes me emotional because (laughs) your daughters have really loving parents and I don't think that happens all the time um so yeah. I just want to acknowledge uh, that and I do think that I think I've gone through my own grief as an adult coming out mm-hmm. uh and so I and as a parent I can imagine that grief would be similar and I think the challenge is that so as a kid you want your parents to accept you and love you. It's the most tender relationship. And even if you know they're going to, like when you said your children were so scared, I'm sure they knew that you love them and would support them. Um, they still have that fear because it's the most intimate relationship I think you can have. Um, and so any type of rejection or hesitation can be a massive blow as a parent you like this is shocking information this is new information and that you have grief and you have a transition period to understand it and so that balancing I can imagine of trying to balance to be supportive and super positive and fierce for your child while also taking time to process it Mm -hmm. is really really challenging. And I think, especially as we look at, there's more conversation now about the trans community, non-binary folks and transitioning. And there's a lot of divisiveness right now, but at least it's being talked about. And I think about when we all grew up, um, there wasn't, the only conversation about trans folks was super negative. And I don't know if you've seen the documentary Disclosure Uh, It's on Netflix and the executive producer is Laverne Cox, Mm. a transgender black woman who's in Orange is the New Black. Um, And it was put out, it put out a few years ago. Um, And what it does is it gives you a history of kind of how trans folks are represented in the media over time. And what was really interesting watching it was that they really highlight the fact that all conversations around trans folks center around uh, the trauma the danger and the sadness of being trans that centers around you know uh, black trans women are always uh, sex workers in movies or criminals or trans people are perverts like look at silence of the lambs um, and essentially that like you're either mentally ill or criminal or both and I think as a parent you only want the best for your kid And I think a lot of the hesitation comes from a place of fear for what their life will be. And that fear comes from a society that only tells trans stories from a deficit lens. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's really normal, I think, for folks to have fear. 
and working through that is really, really essential to say, like, this isn't a sad story. This is probably the happiest story of your children's life. It's the, the happiest moment of your life to figure out who the hell you are. But that's not what society tells us. So I think that grief is the grief is real. Yeah. And you touched on the worry. And, and let's just acknowledge being a teenager sucks. Yes. Like it, yes. It's yes. complicated, no matter which gender or your sexuality, your sexual preferences are, uh, or I, it's not preferences anymore. What is it? Identity, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I, and you speak, Nicole, about that fear. I remember I, I, I experienced that with uh, my daughter who her first romantic relationship was with a trans boy in high school. And um, I, I I mean, she's very fluid, but um, turns out, but, but at the time I always thought I would be okay with having a lesbian as a daughter. Um, But that, so I had to call my friend who is gay and say, why am I, what is all of this that I'm feeling? And it's not concern about her sexual sexuality. It was a concern about how the world would treat her. Like it's normal for heterosexual teenagers to make out in front of their locker, but I really didn't like that she was doing it. (laughs) But so that is, that's also a real thing. The worry about how the world will treat them. Um, The other thing I wanted to ask you both is um, are there any health concerns that you wish you had known about that we don't talk about? Because I do see some teenagers binding themselves and I worry, <laughs> like, I'm going to say, guys, please don't. So what are some health concerns as a, as a parent that you'd like other parents to be aware of? Well, Mickey, Mickey was kind of trying to do it herself and figure out. So she had been like borrowing friends' birth control pills, um, hoping the estrogen in that would help. Um, so we had to, you know, we had to all three of us figure our way around that and get her to the right doctors and get her the right care. Um, and it was scary because it felt like a step <laughs> Like, so, so acknowledging, acknowledging something is one step and then doing something about it medically is, is another, you know, and it felt a little, I'll be honest, I was a little nervous. What is this going to do to my child? And is it healthy? And is this right? Which is why we really wanted a a doctor doing this, not, not just um, trying to figure it out as you go, but they're really, they're really wasn't a whole lot of information readily available. It was not something she felt comfortable going to a regular general practitioner about. We had to find a specialist up here. And it was it was scary for all of us as she she started figuring it out. You want to make sure you're doing the right thing and not doing something that will that will harm them physically or, or emotionally. Um, so she had a rough ride with it. It was easier nine years later with Jamie, because we knew, we knew what to do. And Jamie, Jamie's personality is more like, okay, let's just, this is what I need to do. Let's get done. You know, she's, she's, she's much more likely to just jump in and do what needs to do. Mickey is more like her mother in that way. Um, (laughs) Think about it, you know, every side of things and then think about the sides (laughs) of the sides and then, you know, um, worry about all of it. 
but it, it is hard. And I, I'm finding with their generation, thank goodness, um, there's so much more acceptance. And, you know, they've, they've got friends who are, who are trans and friends who are, you know, every, every variety of everything, you know, and um, college life was, was good that way because there was just, there was a very definite at both schools, um, you know, is very definite policy of this. This is not just acceptable. This is cool. This is good. You be who you are and, and we're not going to let anybody treat you badly. Um, but it's a little hard then to come back out of college and back to the real world and have to have to deal. So, you know, I'm still the mama bear when I'm with them, following them into the bathroom um, and making sure nobody harasses them there. Um, Jamie had to yell at me the other day because I, I wasn't sure if she'd gone outside or not, if I'd missed her. So I, I just said, Jay, are you in here? And we got done and we were back in the car. She said, mom, you can't do that. I have not trained my voice yet. And you're endangering me by asking me to respond. And I was like, ah, okay, something else you don't think about. I hadn't even thought about that, right? Hadn't even thought about that. So unintentionally, my concern for her was making things more difficult for her, you know, and that happens too. So there's, go, <laughs> there's, a, there's a fair amount of forgiveness one needs to ask of, of your kids is because we're, you know, we're going through that too. You know, we're, we're adjusting to all of it too. Mm-hmm. Just assuming good atten- intentions on all sides helps. <laughs> yeah, and having a good relationship with your kids helps too. Yeah. So you can talk through that and they can feel like they can say, that was not cool and this is why. Yes. And you feel like, I'm sorry, I haven't thought about that. I'll do yeah. better next time, right? Yeah. It just, just, just came from a place of worried mom and worried exactly. Mom was, yeah. Yep. Totally. And there's a difference between medically transitioning and socially transitioning. So being trans or non-binary is not a moment in time, just like being a human is not a moment in time. And I think the idea of getting right with it in your own head is a big process for some people take years, decades, maybe they'll never get right with it. And coming out to yourself before you start coming out to people is a big piece. And then if you look at socially transitioning versus medically transitioning. Medically transitioning is like gender affirming surgeries, like top or bottom surgery. It's hormone replacement therapy, uh, whether it's estrogen or testosterone. There's things like um, electrolysis or hair, there's voice training, Mm -hmm. there's packing, there's binding, there's all kinds of things, right? That you can do to your body to feel like your body like to reduce your body dysphoria essentially and then there's socially transitioning which is trying to be seen as the correct gender in society and you know taking up that case in terms of changing your name using the right pronouns using the washroom that affects you that that most closely aligns to your gender those types of things and they're intersecting they go hand in hand but I think for every trans person, it's different. And there's like this danger of the narrative of a single story. And specifically around trans folks, there's this, this narrative of like, I was, you know, born a woman, I become a man, the end. But the reality is it's so much more complex than that. And every trans person has, you know, 
something different. And then the, and then the next question is, do you have a penis or a vagina? Which yeah. is totally inappropriate, right? <laughs> no one would ever come to me and ask me what's under my clothing. Uh, yeah. You know, it's funny. We were at a ball game yesterday and um, I had gone into the women's room and as I was closing the stall behind me and coming out to go wash my hands, a guy just walked right past me and he looked at me and said, am I in the women's room? <laughs> and we both just laughed, you know, but it, it was funny then, but for so many times, so many people, a mistake like that could be, could be dangerous. Yeah. Well, and there's, I think also, there's other factors at play here other than like transphobia. Um, and if you look at trans women, there's a ton of misogyny wrapped up in that. Yes. Uh, and so on top of transphobia, you have misogyny in terms of what they are not allowed to do and that toxic masculinity that is pervasive in our society. And then if you look at trans folks of color, uh, let's add racism into that, let's add xenophobia, let's add ableism. And so there's so many different factors at play in terms of how trans people need to be supported and the different barriers they face. You know, as a white person, I've got a ton of structural advantage mm -hmm. um, that makes me a lot more palatable to society and makes it a lot easier for me to live in a way where I don't feel tons of oppression. Mm -hmm. And that's very different, especially for trans folks of color, black, indigenous, uh, any, you know, any new immigrants to a country, it's super, it's much more difficult. You have to layer that in. Yeah. And I think about the conversation around trans folks and rolling back rights, um, even Roe versus Wade, the reproductive rights mm -hmm. that affects the trans community, uh, the, the piece around the, the bans in the washroom, the ban on trans athletes, it's going to affect most those people that are most marginalized and oppressed. It's, it's going to affect our white, my white trans siblings much less than it's going to affect my racialized trans siblings. Um, and that's the part that gets me is that it's always a punching down in terms of a hierarchy. Um, and that's what we're trying to combat with conversations like this. So like, let's talk about it. Let's understand the, the nuance, the complexity and how to be properly in solidarity with trans folks. Mm -hmm. So how, how do, how, how, you know, like, don't ask them what's in their pants. Like I, you know, I say it all the time. I'm in a constant place of discomfort. So like, how do you live in solidarity? How can, you know, what are the, this conversation is one of them. Like just having this awkward and brave conversation is one, I think. Um, I worry about teenagers like mary your experience was college mm -hmm. um i do worry about medical transition with teenagers and i don't know what the medical community uh does with that uh and i wonder what's more challenging the medical transition or the social transition which is such an excellent point nicole yes um, yes absolutely yeah, I, I worry about medical transition being withheld here now with um, with our laws. Um, I I have seen the immense, even even in an accepting, loving family with all as you say, Nicole, with tons of privilege, um, the emotional 
stress, the emotional, I mean, with, without access to, to good care, without access to, to supportive physical and mental and emotional care, how many kids are we going to lose? I mean, it, it, this idea that, that they're not old enough to know who they are is kind of, kind of nuts. Yeah. I mean, my oldest would tell you that she remembers a dream when she was three, when a magic witch came and changed her into a girl, you know, and she just thought it was a weird dream at that point, or she wasn't ready to, to figure out what it was when you're just a little kid. But both of them told me their favorite color was pink when they were little. And I said, cool, mom's favorite color too. This is great. Um, you know, team mom. But, um, but I didn't think anything of it. I didn't know to think anything of it, neither did they, but. Well, I, don't, I, don't. I think the fear of medical transitioning uh, is based on the, the conversations in society, not actually in reality. Yes. So I heard a stat the other day that 0.2% of trans folks regret their gender affirming medical care or surgery. And 27% of folks who get cosmetic surgery regret it. Mm. So how many things in your life do you regret? And if you go and take a leap and it only, it's only 0.2% chance that you're going to regret it, right. like gender affirming care saves lives. And yeah. our medical system just recently declassified transgender as a mental illness. So like chew on that. So like you... <laughs> And then I don't remember the suicide rates of trans teenagers, but I know it's one of the highest suicide rates. Do you know? It's a, it's like at least five times higher, depending on where you are in the world. And I think like you would do anything. I can tell you guys are both mama bears. You would do anything for your kids. And this is probably the most important thing you can do. Screw the soccer lessons or piano lessons or math, extra math homework. The most important thing you can do is to show them that you love who they actually are. Mm -hmm. That's all that, that will be the biggest factor. And to your point, Mary, I'm terrified for youth today with all of these laws. I'm terrified for myself. Right. right. <laughs> it is horrific and it's all it's fear mongering and it's not based in reality it's based on people's fear of the unknown and i think i think it may go i think it may be using what, what, people's fear i'm sorry using people's uh, fear i just want nicole to finish up and then yeah, i'm sorry i apologize <laughs> it's just hot i think what people don't understand and maybe you can talk about this mary is that your kids are still your kids. They're probably essentially the same. They're the same, regardless of the gender. And I think that's what people don't understand. Like the fear of the unknown is actually, it's actually not unknown. Like you're, it's important. Your gender is important, but it's not, it's not the most important thing. People don't get that. Mm -hmm. No, they're very much still the same people that they always were, you know? Yeah. Um, I was going to say I, that, that fear, I think, I think there's another even more insidious level of it where politicians are using that fear intentionally to stoke, um, you know, just to find people to, to pick on that, that makes their political position stronger. And that's, that's even, even worse to me than the people who are just afraid because they've 
don't think they've ever experienced meeting someone who's trans, you know? They probably have, they just didn't know it. Um, yeah. But, you know, just using that hate to, to gain political advantage, is, is, it's just unspeakable, it's really. And when you say, like coming back to that fear and Kimberly, to your point, like, what do we do? If you want to be an ally, if you want to be in solidarity, it, it's spend the time to learn what what is going on with the trans community, the different types of genders out there, um, the, and the, the little actions that you can take to show somebody that you are inclusive. So a couple of years ago, I was having a conversation with a colleague of mine, uh, who's a cis woman, and she said, can I ask you a question? Uh, I was like, go ahead. And she said, I want to put my pronouns in my signature like you do, but I feel like a fraud and a fake if I do that. And I said, okay, I'll tell you why I want you as a non-binary person who uses they, them to put your pronouns in. I said, when you put your pronouns in, you tell me that you understand pronouns are important. And you also tell me what your pronouns are. So I don't have to assume. And so much of our life is about assumptions on, and that's just how our brain work, right? What's the shortcut? How do we make all these assumptions? So I said, when you do that, you signal to me that you're probably a safer person than not. And that's important because now I feel a little bit more comfortable with you. And so it's, it's little things like that, that, uh, it's not everything, but it's something you can do that signifies it. If you put a pride, you know, sign on your lawn, you're telling people something about yourself, right? You're there's especially in white communities, oh, silence yeah. is violence. Like we are just so used to like upholding white supremacy and all kinds of oppressions by mm-hmm. remaining silent. And we think silence is neutral, but it's violence. So that's so critical. Sorry, I can see you want to jump in. No, well, there's just so much. And, and I'm learning about how I always center myself and my experience in these conversations. But I have to share that for the first time, well, okay, two things, because that old pride flag has been out there. My neighbor has a gay, gay brother, and he came to visit um, for a family picnic, and we were invited over to the picnic, and he went, a pride flag in Barry? That was so nice to see. <laughs> and so that was nice. And then we have, um, and then the other side of it is for the first time in my life, I'm putting a political sign on my lawn because I believe in the candidate who used to be our mayor. He's a really good leading from the middle politician and we need more of those in my view. And so I put a great big sign on my lawn And I also have had over the last year after George Floyd, the Barry community, what does it say? It says hate, hate can't live here or something like that. And then it's got all of the symbols, right? And I noticed that BIPOC folks who come by hang out on my lawn and pet my puppies and come to the garage sale because they just see it. They just see that this is an okay place. But the downside of that is We live in such a polarized world right now. I was sitting out on my lawn, just chillaxing with my 12 week old puppy and somebody in a black truck with a Canadian flag, because the Canadian flag isn't on my house anymore, came by, yelled F you and gave me the finger. 
So, so yeah, I feel, I feel um, scared and worried and confused a lot of the time too. Yeah. And by you putting those flags out and putting that line in the sand, you're joining all the folks that are constantly told to F ourselves off. Yeah. Uh, And at least maybe you're taking that instead of me instead <laughs> of the black little girl down the street well i think i'm ready to take some of that for sure right yeah and i think as white folks we have to learn to be a part of this uh in 2016 black lives matter marched in the pride parade they were one of the honored groups and if you in toronto and if you don't remember they actually stopped the parade for half an hour uh they sat down they had a sit-in Um, because they had a number of demands because pride uh, was continually squeezing out black communities and tokenizing and benefiting from them. Um, And Black Lives Matter made a stance and asked for these things. And uh, maybe what you don't know of the story is that um, a number of white folks uh, stood around the outside uh, to protect the black folks from the bystanders, primarily white queer folks who were uh, pissed, who were really upset and like, how dare you take up space? How dare you stop the parade? And so a number of white allies stood around the outside. They didn't center themselves, but they stood around the outside to protect. Mm. And I think that is such a, you can actually, if you Google it, you can see representation of that. To me, that's a visual representation of what we need to do when we have structural advantage, what we need to do to support folks who don't have that. It's not about us. It's about us being that barrier and protection. And to bring it back to your point, Mary and Kimberly, if you're a fierce mama bear, you already know how to do that for your kids. Mm. Just extend that uh, to to other children. Yeah, other uh, people's kids. Yeah. Right? Everybody else's kids who need love and support and protection. There was a teenager who came to my home and was just hanging out with me. And it was a rare moment and this is a BIPOC teenager and we're just hanging out and she came out to me and said she couldn't, she couldn't tell her mom and she didn't know how, but she knew that she could just be who she was here and that that was an okay thing. These kids are just, like I said, being a teenager sucks. Being a teenager now is even more complicated. So Mary, um, as we wrap up this conversation, which I would love to go on forever, um, is there one thing you wish you had done differently or that you could rewind that you think other parents may benefit from? There's plenty I wish I'd done differently. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible to have. I mean, I I wish I'd known earlier. I wish I'd seen signs and been able to go to them instead of waiting for them to to go through all that anxiety and and terror and and all of that. I wish I'd been able to save them that. Um, You know, I I wish I'd known sooner so they could start care sooner. So there were, you know, they they sort of feel more comfortable in their own skin. But I, I didn't have... 
I didn't know. I had no way to understand that at that point. So, and, and you don't need your parents saying, hey, do you think you might be? Because that, that's also not necessarily, <laughs> I don't want to put them in any boxes, you know, I don't, I don't want to yeah. give them the idea that I ought to be directing who they are in that way, mm-hmm. other than being good people. Um, but I, I still wish, I still wish I could have saved them lots of anguish. Mm-hmm. I can't fix it, so I can only fix it going forward, you know? You know, um, that's such a great, great point. Like, it, it, it is what it is. Let's move on in a more positive, curious way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and honestly, nowadays, it's so normal to ask teenagers which pronouns they like. That's a good point. Yeah. Ask, what pronouns, like, what do you want to call you? Maybe easier for someone who's not their parent to do that, because yeah. as a parent, it'd be a sort of, you, you start with an assumption that you know everything like that about them, right? But if you ask my we're all evolving. 12-year-old kid, that would not seem weird at all, you know? We're all evolving, right? And yeah. so another question that it has become more common in my coaching, but also with my friends is, who are you becoming today? and it's just a opener Nicole any final thoughts um I think in terms of doing things differently so I've got a nine-year-old and I just uh dropped him off to school this morning so I'm constantly asking him if he feels like a boy still and then chuckling when he says yes (laughs) (laughs) I love it um but he's like, he's so great. And we've talked about gender so much. He understands. Um, but when I dropped him off this morning, he had questions about blind people and about dwarfism. Mm. And I was really happy to have that conversation. Um, and I, so working for United Way, I've talked to him about poverty and it's like, why are people sleeping on the streets? And we've talked about it for years. Um, and I think what I'm understanding is that as a parent, if I can open up these subjects and talk to him about what's right, what's wrong, and how to live like anti-oppressively on many, many things, I'm ideally uh, helping him understand that. So when he becomes what most likely will be a white, straight man, mm-hmm. he is a little bit more prepared to have the openness and vulnerability that so many of our men don't have. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what I'm bringing forward in this. It's, it's about all of this. It's about all the intersectionality so that, like you say, you know, he, can, he understands pronouns. He understands how to ask these questions. And he's hopefully going to move forward in a way in which the world, in a positive way. Love that. That's so wise. I love that. And it's not a big deal. It's just part of conversation. Yeah. I love that. But it comes out of necessity, right? If you have an intersectional oppression, you end up talking more. Ideally, you end up talking more about it so that you can create a safer space for yourself. And I think if you have more structural advantage, it's understanding then how to bring, how to talk about those pieces around oppression that maybe don't affect you, but will affect other people. Thank you both for um, diving into this one with me today. I absolutely loved talking to you both. 
Thank you. I love meeting you, Nicole. It's good to know you. <laughs> you too. This is an amazing, important conversation. And especially with what's happening right now in the world, I so appreciate, Kimberly, you making space to talk about this. And for folks who are listening, if this is brand new, there's so much more out there that you can go get um, and, and learn about. And, and uh, I just think it's brilliant that we're able to have these conversations. So thank you. I'm going to be watching Disclosure this weekend. So it's fantastic. We're we're celebrating Pride. So let's um, let's celebrate. Wonderful. Thank you so much for making time to join us today. We wish you all a happy, healthy, and fun Pride Month. And please remember to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. Let's keep fostering connection and building community through candid conversations.